It's definitely good here to be with you on this Lord's Day morning so that we can uh, dive into God's Word where we can not only hear it read, but we can also uh, listen to the Word preached and God willing that it would be a blessing unto us all by the power of the Holy Spirit. So let's, uh, let's turn in our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11 as uh, we continue to make our way through the 11th chapter. And this morning we want to look specifically at verses uh, 32 uh, through 40, verses 32 through 40, which is the end of the chapter. So let's uh, take a look at Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 32. Let's give attention to the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of God. And what more shall I say, for time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, that even chains and imprisonment, they were stoned, they were sawn in two, uh, they were killed with a sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. May God add his blessing to this reading from his holy and inspired word. Uh, Let's bow together in a brief word of prayer. Let's pray. Father God, we are grateful uh, that you so kindly and gently condescend to us and give unto us your word. But we know, O Lord, that it is not merely information but rather it is truth. You feed us through Christ, the manna from heaven. You nourish us, us. you strengthen us, you provide for us. And so we pray, O Lord, that you would give us uh, Christ, that we might be strengthened, that our faith would grow, that you would make us purer in our sanctification, that you would more fully conform us to the image of Christ. And in so doing, that you would bring glory to your name. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. I was recently watching a documentary, and it was about uh, a one particular uh, football team uh, where at one point in their season they were playing in the conference championship game, and uh, by the third quarter it did not look good. Uh, they were down 28-3, to 28-3, so they were down 25 points in the third quarter, Uh, I think a lot of the fans at that particular point thought, well, that's it. The game is basically over, and they began leaving the stadium by the thousands. Uh, And on the one hand, that's understandable. You know, if your team's down by 25 points, that's a pretty big deficit. And, uh, you know, chances are they're not going to be able to make it back. 
And so as uh, the, the fans were starting to filter out and fans even got into their cars and they started driving away, a number of them turned on the radio as they were driving away and as they're down the road and all of a sudden there's a touchdown and all of a sudden there's another touchdown and all of a sudden fans in their cars began turning around and coming back to the game because in the rest of that third quarter, that team scored 28 points And it became, I think, one of the greatest comebacks literally in NFL history. And so you had these fans who were turning around, coming back, running back to the stadium. And in fact, they said that they had no means for readmittance. In other words, once you left the game, you could not come back in. But there were so many fans clambering to get back into the game. They just said, all right, you know what, just let them in. They had fans crawling over the fences. And, of course, that team eventually went on to win in overtime, 41 to 38. So you can well imagine that uh, if you were at that game or if you remember that game in particular, that many people went to ask others, were you at the game? And I suspect that many people were, who were there would say, yes, I was at the game. But I, I propose to you that's not the key question to ask. That's not the key question to ask. The question to ask is, is if you were at that game, did you leave? Or did you stay for the duration of the game, even when things looked grim, even when the chips were down? That's the key question. You know, not to, not to get too critical, but what a lot of those fans amounted to is that they were fair-weather fans. In other words, when the team was doing well... They stayed. They were there. But when things looked grim, they decided to leave. And it was only when things began to improve that they quickly did a U-turn and came back. In other words, they were fair-weather fans. There were, of course, thousands who were not, who stuck it out through thick and thin. Well, this is the particular idea, I think, that the author of the epistle to the Hebrews has in mind, is that he wants to show us the true nature of faith as he has gone through this 11th chapter. And in this particular case, he's showing us through the lives of the Old Testament saints that there's no such thing as a fair-weather faith. In other words, that we trust in God and that we believe in God when things are going well but that as soon as things turn poorly or when things look grim, we start looking for the door. That, in a sense, is the problem that the people faced, and this is why he was writing to them, because he was saying, don't give up on the promises of Christ. Do not give up on the promise of salvation in him, even though things may look grim even though you may be persecuted. In other words, there's no such thing as a fair-weather faith. And in fact, this is the very thing that Christ himself addresses, for example, in his parable of the sowers in the 13th chapter of his gospel, in the gospel of Matthew, when he talks about a faith that has no root, and when the, uh, the, the sun comes out, or when the tribulation and persecution comes out, because there is no root, it withers and it fades away. 
Well, what the author is saying here in this portion of the letter is that there will undoubtedly be times of joy. There will be times of victory. There will be times of blessing in the Christian life. And there's a sense in which we can say, okay, we can believe, we can trust, we can love our Lord for his blessings. But he also wanted them to know, as they undoubtedly knew firsthand, that they were not the first to encounter trials. They were not the first to encounter persecutions. They were not the first to encounter difficulty so that he was going to show them through the lives of these Old Testament saints, stay firm. Don't be a fair weather fan. Don't think that you can go in and out because in the sense that there is no such thing as a faith that withers under persecution, but rather there's only one type of true faith, and that's a faith that perseveres even in the face of persecution. And so here, I think what the author is ultimately aiming to show is that truth that Paul himself knew so well that he tells us about in Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 and following. He says, I have learned in whatever situation I find myself to be content I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. In other words, he wanted his recipients to know, as well as us, that whether in times of plenty or in times of want, we have to seek to manifest a faith that perseveres. But of course, as we'll see from this passage, this faith is not something that we ourselves muster from within, but rather it is the gift of God by his grace in Christ through the Spirit that gives us this faith to persevere in times of plenty and in times of want. So what we want to do is we want to see first what the author has to say about faith in times of plenty. In other words, should I believe when things are good? And of course, the answer would be yes. But then secondly, we also want to see what the author has to say about faith in times of want. In other words, should I believe when times are tough? And the answer to that question is, of course, yes, absolutely. And he wants us to see how it is God's people in the past had faith in times of plenty and in times of want, how that was the faith to which he was calling his, the recipients of his letter, and that how this is the faith to which he calls us to have that faith in times of plenty as well as in times of want. So times of plenty. The author presses his point. Remember the whole uh, theme, if you will, of this 11th chapter where he says in verse 1, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. He's demonstrated through the lives of the patriarchs uh, that they lived in the hope of the promises even though they had not received them. You know, they lived in the anticipation, in the long-awaited hope. 
He also showed how that faith becomes manifest even in great courage, with great courage in the face of danger, such as the faith of Moses' parents who ignored and disobeyed uh, Pharaoh's command to slaughter the, the, the young boys that were two years and, and under. How Moses was willing to suffer with his people Israel and to eschew that life of comfort and luxury that he had as a member of Pharaoh's household. How the Israelites were willing to get their feet wet, to step into the Red Sea because they believed uh, that God would redeem them. Or, of course, how Rahab the prostitute welcomed the spies and because of her faith, uh, God preserved the life of her and her household. But as he makes these points, I think he admits that there are many other saints to whom he could point. And so he runs through a number of prominent Old Testament examples. He mentions or allude to a number of Old Testament saints that recognized, that experienced, that brought about great and mighty things. You know, Gideon's army of 300, Gideon's army of 300 soldiers defeated 135,000 Midianite soldiers. That was something that was accomplished through faith. How uh, Barak, the judge in the book of Judges, defeated General Sisera as he was persecuting the Israelites. How Samson conquered the Philistines, and we know of Samson's great strength and his might and his ability to defend Israel from her foes. How Jephthah defeated the Ammonites. Think of all of the peoples that David conquered, and especially prominently in that retinue of uh, those of, that he defeated would be Goliath, this great and mighty warrior that he defeated as a young boy, that he, he defeated essentially by faith in the promises of God. He mentions Samuel, of course, who was one of Israel's greatest prophets, he mentioned those who stopped the mouths of lions, which is an allusion to Daniel when he was cast into uh, the lion's den and left there overnight, such, so much so that the authorities did not think that he would survive. And yes, as the morning dawned and they opened up the den, there was Daniel unharmed as if he were with uh, a den of domestic house cats. And then, of course, he mentions those who quenched the power of fire, which is an allusion to the three friends of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as they went into Nebuchadnezzar's fiery furnace. The author mentions also those who received their dead back by resurrection, which alludes to Elijah in raising the, the prophet, I'm sorry, raising the son of uh, the, the widow of uh, Zarephath, and then Elisha raising the Shunammite woman's son, both of those occurring in the books of First and Second Kings. Of all of these mighty acts that were all accomplished through faith, through faith, the author says in verse 33, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. These saints accomplished many mighty and 
fantastic acts. But at the same time, I think that the author was well aware of the lives to whom he appealed. You know, he shows these great and mighty works, which I think is not so much a commentary on the lives of these Old Testament saints, as much as it is a commentary about the faithfulness of our triune God who acts through faith. The whole point here is not the quality of the lives of the saints, but rather of the nature of a faith that trusts in our triune God. Because these Old Testament saints accomplished many mighty things. But if we look past these particular acts, of which I suspect the author's audience would have been well aware, we can see that it wasn't them. It wasn't these Old Testament saints by their power, but rather it was God through faith working through them. How many times did Gideon put God to the test and question whether or not God would fulfill his promises? Barak wasn't confident enough to go into battle without Deborah. Samson, of course, as we know, was certainly a mighty judge for Israel, but we also know that he dallied with sin as he ended up, uh, you know, in the arms of Delilah. He was not purely righteous in that regard. Jephthah foolishly vowed to sacrifice his own daughter. Samuel was a great prophet and a great man of God, and yet he appointed his less than godly sons as judges. David, as we know, was a man after God's own heart. He defeated Goliath in battle. He conquered many foes, but he was also an adulterer and a murderer. And so what the author points out is that it is God who is at work in them and that in spite of their failings, in spite of their doubts, in spite of their sins, in spite of their weaknesses, God saw them through it. And God gave unto them victory. He's the one who blessed them. And so what the author is saying by appealing to the lives of these saints and these mighty things that they accomplished is that in the present circumstances, in spite of their weaknesses, in spite of their doubts, in spite of their fears, God could and would still, through faith, deliver them. That was a reality. That was the promise. So God wasn't looking for sinlessness or perfection from them, Because, of course, we know that it is Christ through his sinless work, through his perfect obedience, that God has received all that he has desired from his law and through the law by his son's work. He wants the rest of us, or he wants us all, including the recipients of this letter, to rest in the finished work of Christ and to look to Christ to carry us through these trials and these challenges that he presents to us. In some cases, in spite of our weak and struggling faith, the author is saying God can still nevertheless accomplish many and mighty things. 
This is what Jesus himself tells us in Matthew chapter 17, verse 20. For truly I say to you, if you have the faith of the grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. It's not about the strength of us. It's not about our abilities. But rather, it is about the grace of a God-given faith is even as small as an insignificant mustard seed, the grain of a mustard seed, that resting in the power and the promises of God in Christ through the Spirit is the means by which we can accomplish great things, such as many of the things here that are listed. And so what we have to pray for, therefore, is that God would give unto us a strong and mighty faith, one that looks to Christ and the promises of the gospel in times of plenty. And I think that what's the underlying thing here is the idea that so often it's the case that when things are going well, we tend to forget God. We tend to forget that he's the one who sustains us, who upholds us. And so I think an implicit point here that the author is making is that even in times of plenty, when things are going well, recognize the source and the fountain from whom all of these blessings flow. And by faith in the promises of Christ and in his gospel, trust in God to do mighty things. And we very well may indeed see God do mighty things. We, by faith, can see him heal those who are sick. We can, by faith, see him uh, deliver those who are in positions of weakness. We can, by faith, in the promises of God in Christ, see him heal broken relationships, restore uh, familial bonds. There are many things that we can see God accomplish through faith But at the same time, we also want to note that the author here was no cockeyed optimist who only saw the the, the world through rose-colored glasses. He also recognized that in times of plenty, we need faith, but also in times of want, we also need to have that same faith. So this brings us to our second point. The author was a realist. And so he was very familiar with his Old Testament, as is evident here in this passage of Scripture and throughout the entirety of his book. And so he knew, yes, there were many victories that were accomplished through faith in Christ, but that there were also many apparent defeats. And I want to stress apparent which will hopefully become clear as we progress. He says in the latter half of verse 35, some were tortured refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth." Now, who the author precisely has in view is unclear because he doesn't mention any names. There are some hints, however, both in the Bible as well as in extra-biblical literature from that period. 
In the intertestamental literature, which is uninspired, there was a Jewish man by the name of Eliezer who was tortured to death by, by uh, pagans. Seven brothers and a mother were whipped. In Second Chronicles, King Asa imprisoned the prophet Hanani when he rebuked him for not trusting in God. Ahab, wicked Ahab and his wife Jezebel jailed the prophet Micaiah for prophesying his death in 1 Kings chapter 22. Zechariah is a prophet that Jesus mentions. He was killed by stoning for rebuking the people, and we see this in 2 Chronicles chapter 24. It's according to Jewish tradition that the prophet Isaiah was fleeing for his life, uh, tried to hide inside a, a hollow log, and that he was captured and he was sawn in two. And in the past, we know that the people of God were marked by their poverty, by which the author describes them in terms of their meager and humble clothing, wandering about in deserts and mountains as they lived wearing skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. Now, there's two things here that I want us to see about that particular comment. First, notice, yes, their meager clothing their mistreatment. But the author says here that these were those of whom the world was not worthy. In other words, what he's saying is that these saints were royalty. They were kings all. They were all of them kings. They were princes in God's, in God's kingdom. Think, for example, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who were princes. They were spiritual royalty, and yet they lived in tents. So the author is saying, in spite of the dignity, in spite of their royal status as sons of God, nevertheless, they lived in these meager conditions. They lived in these lowly estates. And so I think he's trying to encourage them to say, God knows who you are. God recognizes who you are in Christ. He has not forgotten you, even if you must be persecuted, even if you must be afflicted, even if you must be clothed in low clothing, in, in sheepskin and in the, the skin of goats. But what he also wanted them to know is that connected with who they are in Christ, because the world is not worthy of them. The world is not uh, worthy of us in that sense is what the extension is as, as we think about it in connection with us. Is that he wanted to, them to see, he wants us to see that these Old Testament saints, as much as they were persecuted, as much as they were suffering, they did not allow their present circumstances to dictate their lives. Their lives were set on a trajectory that was aimed at heaven itself, which is why he says in verse 35, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Their goals were set upon Christ who is seated in the heavens and living for him in the present, knowing that Christ would raise them from the dead on the last day. They were seeking a better life. 
which means that they did not allow the present circumstances of this life that in the scope of eternity are but for a mere moment so utterly define their faith that they would become destitute of hope. Their faith was defined by Christ who was seated in the heavens, who was saying to them, persevere, I will see you through. Persevere, and I will raise you on the last day. He says in verses 39 and following, all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. He's saying, look, these saints did not even receive the promise that you now possess. And so now, in light of the promise that you now possess, you behold the completed work of Christ. You know Christ. Don't lose hope. If they did not lose hope with so little that they knew, how much should we be strengthened seeing that we can bask in the light and the glory of the fullness of the revelation of the Son of God? You know, the son of the widow of Zarephath and the son of the Shunammite woman, those young men eventually died again. But their resurrections from death pointed to a greater resurrection, a resurrection unto eternal life. Notice it's this hope of the resurrection that gave the apostle Paul hope in the face of trial. And this is the same hope that the author of Hebrews holds out to us. Now, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 and following. Notice his opening words here. He says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer man is wasting away, our inner man is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction, notice how he characterizes the sufferings of this present world. This light and momentary affliction. Now, I don't want to diminish in the least, the intensity of our sufferings in this present life. Many of you are suffering. Many who are not here are suffering. Many of our fellow brothers and sisters in Ukraine are suffering. And yet Paul can say, for this light and momentary affliction is what? Is preparing us for the eternal weight of glory. Beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Everything that we see here is passing. It's temporary. And in the scope of eternity is not even a blink of an eye. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly body, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us the spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. It was this hope of eternal life and of the resurrection that gave those Old Testament saints hope. And it was the same hope that the author of Hebrews wanted to say, 
fix the eyes of your faith upon this, that you might be filled with courage in the face of these trials. He wanted his readers to press on in times of want by the gift of God's grace through faith in Christ to see the goal of our pilgrimage, the unseen hope of eternal life. In the words of 16th century poet George Herbert, he says, Arise, sad heart, if thou dost not withstand. Christ's resurrection thine may be. Do not by hanging down break from the hand which as it riseth, raiseth thee. Arise, arise, and with his burial linen drying thy eyes. Christ left his grave clothes that we might, when grief draws tears or blood, not want a handkerchief. It's Christ's resurrection that gives us hope. And this is the hope to which the author was pointing the recipients of his letter. And this is the hope to which the author points us. So, beloved, when we meditate upon the lives of the Old Testament saints, what the author is is presenting here is a truth that Paul knew so well. That in whatever situations we find ourselves, we must pray that we would learn to be content. That we would know how to be brought low and that we would know how to abound. That in any and every circumstance, that we would learn the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. So that we would recognize that only through Christ and faith in him can we do all things through him. I think this is a truth that can be difficult for us to grasp. Like the Fairweather fans at that championship game, as soon as things look grim, we start looking for the door. But we would be mistaken if we walked away from this passage to think that the answer, therefore, lies within us. That the answer lies within us trying to believe more or to gather more courage if we approach, beloved, the Christian life in this manner, we're going, to be looking for the, the, we're going to be looking to kindle the fire of faith in a desert land of our own meager and paltry abilities, or perhaps I should say inabilities. Rather, the whole point in this passage is that faith in the gospel promises of God come through Christ in the Spirit. Faith is the gift of God, and the only way to strengthen our faith is to return to the source of the gift and to ask for more grace, to plead for more faith before the throne of God, to plead that during times of plenty we would rejoice and that in times of want he would supply his grace so that we would not merely persevere, but that as Paul says in that beautiful eighth chapter of Romans, that we would be more than conquerors. So we need to pray that God would fix the eyes of our faith upon what really matters, the promise and the hope of the resurrection. And by God's grace in Christ, may it also be said of us that who through faith we conquered kingdoms, we enforced justice, that we obtained promises that we were made strong out of weakness, that we escaped the edge of the sword, that perhaps even for some, that we were tortured, refusing to accept release so that we might rise again to a better life. May these words be said of us, whether in times of plenty or in times of want. May God grant unto us a faith that is strong in all times. Let's bow together in prayer.
Father God, we are grateful for the gift of faith. For apart from your grace in Christ through the Spirit, we would be lost. But, O Lord, sometimes we recognize that our faith wavers. We're filled with doubts. We allow the chaos around us to eat away at our confidence. Forgive us, Father, for trusting too much in ourselves, and we pray that in those times of doubt and fear that you would drive us to our knees in prayer that we might seek greater amounts of faith from you, that you would strengthen our weakened faith, and that you would so fill the eyes of our faith with the sight of the Lord Jesus Christ that nothing would cause us fear, that nothing would fill us with doubt, but rather you would give unto us courage that we would be strong and courageous in the face of blessing and in the face of trial. Oh Lord, there are many here in this church that are suffering, that are suffering illness, that are suffering long-term ailments, that are suffering injury and even torn and broken family relationships. We pray, O Lord, for them. We pray for the miners and for the coopers and for the Stantons, and uh, for the many others, O Lord, who suffer. We also pray, Father, for your church in Ukraine. They are undoubtedly passing through the fires of trial. Not only has their land been torn by war and aggression, violence and bloodshed, but there are even persecutors in their midst seeking to do them harm. We pray, O Lord, that you would fill their hearts with a faith, a faith that looks to better things, a faith that is affixed to the Lord Jesus as he sits in royal session at your right hand, to know that you, O Lord, care for them, that you protect them, but that if you so require of them their lives, that you would fill them with the hope that this life is not all that there is, But rather, O Lord, that they would know that there is the hope of the resurrection, that you would see them through in times of plenty and in times of want. We pray, O Lord, that in all of these circumstances, we would always be a people of faith, that God-given faith, given through Christ, through the Spirit, by your grace, so that we would magnify and glorify you, our triune God. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's precious and holy name. Amen.